how do we think about the choices, the, the volition, the will that we have as people, and at the same time, reflect on the sovereignty of God? As we read Scripture, Scripture is pretty clear that God is the sovereign ruler. He is the king over everything, and that he makes promises, and he fulfills those promises, and no one can thwart his purposes. And as we read through Scripture, we see that he holds humans, you and I, accountable for the choices we make. How do we resolve those things? How do we think about those things well? And um, what maybe a little reflection on why I chose this. Um, One is I'm interested in resolving this. Um, As I pastor, as I teach classes at LBC, these are perennial questions that we wrestle with as we read Scripture. You can't... um, lest I make an absolute statement. Most of the books of the Bible that you read, you bump up against these questions in one way or another, probably all of the books of the Scriptures. Um, So I'm interested. It's something um, that a discussion I come across, but I think particularly over the last year, as I've interacted with the saints here at Calvary, as I've interacted with my children, as my children talk about interactions they have with their peers, um, it seems that this is a question that maybe is burning a little hotter in some hearts here at Calvary, and we haven't really, that I can think of, we haven't really spent an extended time thinking through the issues, developing the scriptures, wrestling with this. In sermons, we'll preach about it and discuss it as we look at various passages, uh, but we don't really do it in an extended way. So it seemed that this would be a good thing to do as we all come together as the church to think through this topic together. Um, And as we come at this topic and as I think about my growth in understanding of this, growing up in a Christian home, um, thinking about these things, hearing preaching, going to seminary, being exposed to a wide variety of perspectives on these issues, the thing that I come back to, um, if I could say, what is the posture of my heart and what do I pray the posture of your heart is as we engage in this topic. That is this, a posture that is open and receptive to who God is and how he has revealed himself. And that requires a constant humbling of my heart, a conforming of my thinking and my heart to the ways of God. As we read scripture, we know there's an inclination of our hearts and our inclination is not towards God. Our inclination is not to the ways of God, let alone our creational status that we are limited beings, created beings, and God is infinite in every way, infinite in his glories, and um, his, can I say, his capacity to know, the holiness and purity of his motives are so superior to ours. So I pray that your hearts would be, would be open to God's word, humble to God's word, and that you would find joy in this. There's a tendency that this topic can descend into vigorous debate. I'm going to even, even use the word sinful arguing. And I don't want that to happen at all. Um, I'm okay if you're not where I'm at, 
I'm okay even if you disagree with me. I'm going to try to convince you from Scripture. But what I don't want is there for there to be argumentation. And so if you have questions, I don't want you to fear you're asking a question is going to result in, can you believe? I mean, can you believe what Ed asked? Like, that's unreal. No, I, I want there to be an atmosphere of, of open engagement in God's word and wrestling together. None of us here in this room, including me, have this thing tied up. In fact, I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur yesterday. Um, I don't even, why? I guess I was, I followed a link that showed a link. And it was a Ligonier conference, and so I looked at the rest of the speakers, a Ligonier conference on the sovereignty of God and free will and um, the sovereignty of God and human choice and responsibility and things like that. And, uh, and I forgot why I was mentioning that. Oh, yes, uh, MacArthur was saying, you know, we are, we are all growing in this, and none of us are completely satisfied in our thinking. I'm going to put a few different words to that. None of us get to the point of the knowledge of God to say everything about God makes complete sense to me. We're never going to reach that. That's not that we throw rationality out the window. But we as a people are wanting to be submissive to the revelation of God's word and constantly have that work of the spirit transforming and conforming our hearts to the knowledge and the truth of God. So let me just look at an overview uh, where we'll be going today. It'll just be an introduction. Um, then next week, um, in one week, pray for me. In one week, we're going to overview the position. I is not our con- my conviction, not our conviction here, um, of the leadership of Calvary, of the right understanding. So I'm going to try to, um, as fairly as I can, outline those arguments. And I think those arguments are... The reason I'm going to spend time doing that is because I think those arguments have an intuitive reasonableness to our thinking and to our perspective as people. Then I want to spend some time just feeling the weight of the revelation of God, of the sovereignty of God. There is an immense weight in Scripture. I'm going to say a revelational demand. God is sovereign. And time and time and time again, we see that sovereign ruling of God in this world. And, and it's a, I think it's a cadence throughout Scripture. Um, and so it begins with God creating. I mean, let's just um, be honest here. Anyone have a choice of your existence? Is that fair? Is that fair? So even in the act of creation, we see something about the sovereignty of God, which has a little bit of, um, I'm not sure I like that. I mean, I didn't even have a choice over my name, let alone my existence. So we're going to spend some time thinking about the sovereignty of God in creation and his providence in nature over, um, you know, think of the, the atmosphere, um, the seasons, um, tides, hurricanes, storms, natural disaster, and the animal kingdom. Then we'll look at the providence of God over nations and leaders, the sovereignty of God and judgment, and I still didn't put that. Nathan said, recreation? Like, oh, recreation. I mean recreation. Here, I forgot uh, a necessary grammatical uh, thing here. 
sovereignty of God in judgment and recreation. And so we'll spend some time looking at that. Then we'll move on and think about the fact that God has created us as people for worship. This assumes something of our volition, of our choice. Um, And then God holds us uh, morally responsible for whether we worship the creator or reject him as the creator. Then we're going to look at um, the work of God in salvation. Firstly, what is the nature of depravity? What, what ways do unredeemed people live? What desires do they have? What kinds of choices do they make and can they make? Then looking at God's sovereignty in salvation, um, where he rescues us. I'm being deliberately provocative here. He rescues us, ultimately, to the true freedom of perfection in eternity. And that is a freedom to do righteousness for eternity. And it is a freedom from the possibility of doing the opposite, a freedom from sin. Then um, we'll move on and look at some issues in decision-making, suffering and evil, and prayer. Now, obviously, even though this is a summer series, it's a huge subject, and um, we're not going to get to answer all your questions. So just a little about that. Um, you know, you're used to me. I'm happy that you don't have all your answers, questions answered. Okay, so what I, what I hope, my goal, is that you'll have some good frameworks for thinking, that as you wrestle, I'm sure you'll have new questions. Um, it's my prayer that many of your questions will in some way be satisfied and resolved, but you'll have other questions that aren't resolved. Um, I have some questions that aren't resolved, but hopefully we'll be put along in a direction to be, ans- to be asking questions in a biblical way and seeking to respond to those questions in a biblical way. To begin with, I want to turn to Romans chapter 9. So turn with me there, please. Okay, in Romans 9, uh, my my desire here in reading Romans 9 um, is um, fairly singular. We're going to read through the chapter. I'm just going to make some initial comments about what we read uh, in this section. So beginning in Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Please give your attention to the Word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For that is what the promise said, 
about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say then to me, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, the two points I want to bring here is that Um, Paul anticipates two kinds of objections or questions. Paul's been around the block a few times by the time he writes Romans. He's been out evangelizing. He's been ministering to the Gentiles. He's gone to many new cities. He's opened the scriptures many times. He's engaged in many discussions. He's um, engaged with many objections. And Paul, in his experience and his wisdom and in the inspiration of the Spirit, anticipates that the Christians reading this book, to the, uh, this letter to the Romans, and the Spirit anticipating Christians reading this discussion for centuries in the future, would ask these kinds of questions. What are the questions? Well, as I'm hearing you talk, Paul, hang on. Doesn't that make God unjust? And hang on, Paul, if that's the case, then how does he still find fault? These questions that Paul anticipated and the Spirit anticipated, we resonate with. Whatever Paul is claiming here, whatever he is speaking of regarding the work of God, it is natural that humans that even redeemed people, Christians, would read that and have these two kinds of questions. The doctrines that Paul is talking about, said another way, it's normal and natural that we read it and go, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure that's the right way to think. I mean, because I mean, if you think about it this way, doesn't that make God unjust? That's the way as humans, even as redeemed people, we are naturally inclined to, to infer and to make connections with what we read here. And why does he still find fault? 
So to say it another way, Paul expects people, the spirit who inspired Paul expects people to initially see the way God works as unreasonable. I think this is a very, very important statement. It's a very important statement for my own soul. As I'm studying scripture, and I have that privilege of pouring over the text, reading books week after week, year after year, there are many times I'm in a text, I'm like, you know, if I was writing this, I wouldn't write it this way. That thought comes to me so many times, and I have to go, don't be stupid. What are you saying? Or if I was going to talk about it this way, I'd at least give these other examples or introduce these other caveats or say these other things. Just in the study of Scripture, many times I think, you know, God, I think you're a bit unreasonable in how you've constructed this chapter. I mean, surely Paul could have been a little clearer. Have you, have, has, has anyone thought that? Well, what are we saying? We're saying, you know, there's something about the way the Spirit of God which seems unreasonable unfair, just even on like the practical inscripturation process, let alone these deep doctrines. This is so, so important that as we read scripture, we anticipate our reflexive response to what we learn of God in so many ways. And that reflexive response that we have when we go, hang on, is God just? Is God fair? That doesn't seem fair. We I want you to recognize that and go, oh, I see what I just did. That doesn't mean that, you've, that your first read of Scripture was right. But it does mean that the first inflection of your heart is to question God. So I'm going to read what you see in front of you again. Paul expects, and the Spirit of God expects, people to initially see the way God works as unreasonable. This should be a part of your praying. Lord, I don't naturally think your thoughts in accord to you into creation. I don't naturally think your thoughts after you. I naturally think human thoughts, distorted human thoughts, which don't sync up with your ways and your purposes and your revelation. As I read your word, help me to understand it clearly. Help me to use my brain. Help me to use all the resources you've given me with teachers, with understanding grammar, thinking carefully, thinking accurately, thinking logically, not throwing rationality out the window and just giving up to mysticism. But in that process, constantly recognizing, oh Lord, help me to understand your word rightly and to be submissive to your word. And at some point, there's a step. And it's not a step of blind faith. It's a step of submissiveness. I see what God says. I understand what he means. I have lots of questions still. But I submit to what? He says, and that point of submission is not a point of absolute knowledge, absolute understanding. It's not the point of having no longer having questions. It's the point of being submissive to the word of God. 
Now, all of that does not say, I'm not trying to defend our theological position at this point. All I'm saying is, I want us to have a certain posture of heart as we read God's word and particularly wrestle through this issue. And it seems to me um, that I think the Trinitarian reality of God is the preeminently mind-blowing revelation of God, three in one, three persons in one being, indistinguishable in essence, distinguishing relations, uh, that close to that in my mind is wrestling with understanding the nature of God and his sovereign rule in this world and our responsibility and volition and choice. I study scripture, I want to be submissive to scripture, and I still say, I don't get it yet. And I suspect for all eternity, we won't get it fully. I expect in glory, I'll get a whole lot more. I expect to understand scripture a whole lot more, but I will never attain to the status of God's comprehensive knowledge, of God's comprehensive wisdom. I will never fully get my hands around who God is and how he works. And it seems to me, the infinite eternal God, we will forever and ever be gazing into his glories with new insight and new awe and new worship, beholding the glories of the infinite eternal God. And as we wrestle with this topic, I think this is just a foretaste, an anticipation what it is to worship the infinite God. So, this is not an easy topic. I hope you bring notepad and pen. You have a bulletin. If you've all got a bulletin, there's a pen in front of you. I encourage you to bring a notepad to take notes. Um, you might want to write some questions down, shoot me emails. Could you clarify? Could you tell me again what you said just there? Um, so so I, I want you to have some anticipation of doing some, some mental work. I don't want it to be overwhelming, uh, discouraging. Um, but I do want you to come with like this readiness to invest mentally spiritually, in reasoning through and seeking to understand Scripture here. During the class, we'll have time for questions. Put your hands up. If I'm not ready to answer, we'll wait a minute. If you ask a really good question that I'm going to answer, we can answer it in there. Maybe it's a great question we'll discuss. Maybe it's the kind of question where I'll say, great question. I don't want to go there today. We'll go there in the next. Or I might say, great question. Email that to me. But I don't want you to be reserved about asking questions. Uh, there'll be some give and take, right? Um, if there are too many questions, I might say, I, we, we need to pause on the questions here and get through some more material. But I'm pretty sure the questions you raise will be questions, most of the questions you raise are probably questions we've all asked before. And some of you might raise a question and I might go, that's a really good question. I haven't thought of it quite that way. Um, thank you. And that will all stimulate us in learning and seeking to understand God's word. Um, so... Initially, some definitions I just want to look at. Um, we're, I've been using the word sovereignty up till this point. Uh, what is sovereignty? Um, particularly, sovereignty speaks of a characteristic or an attribute of God. God is holy. God is love. God is eternal. God is omniscient. God is sovereign. This is speaking of an attribute of God, something that God is in his essence. 
God is sovereign, and he is sovereign. He didn't have to create to be sovereign. Sovereignty is something he is in and of himself. It's the nature of his existence. But then we talk about God's sovereignty in creation. The particular way we would talk about that is providence. So providence is God's sovereign ruling in creation. We say his sovereign action. What does a sovereign God do when he creates? And how does a sovereign God relate to creation? And so we have this word providence. And sometimes we use the words interchangeably. Um, and probably I'm going to as well, and you can put your hand up and tell me you've caught me out. Um, but, but particularly, these are the distinctions. So sovereignty, an attribute of God, providence, the way the sovereign God works in um, this world, sovereignly creates and through providence works in this world. So with that in mind, I, I want to... Um, oh, there we go. So with that in mind, I want to turn for a summary, I think a very helpful, succinct summary of the doctrine we're wrestling with. I want to turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this is Westminster Confession of Faith 3.1, God's eternal decree. Now this word decree really is a, that's kind of a precise word to talk about God's will in action. God decrees something to be. He wills it. He purposes it to be. And it is. So God's eternal decree. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither, so yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So here, the, um, this part of the Westminster Confession kind of anticipates the questions raised that Paul raises in Romans 9. You just kind of see that coming out. Um, God's sovereignty is such that he is not unjust, he is not unfair, and that humans are held responsible for their actions. Uh, and then 5.1, providence. God, the great creature of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So these statements, I think, are, are helpful places to pull together and to summarize the doctrine that I believe we see in Scripture regarding the nature of the eternal God and his engagement, interaction with, working out of his purposes in creation, both in animate creation animals, morally responsible creatures like humans. Okay, so um, I'm curious, as you, th as you think about this and as you've thought about this in the years, I'm curious to hear some of the questions you have as you come at this topic.
So here's an, here's an opportunity to kind of float some of these out, and maybe uh, you might float them in a way that um, I might not have phrased them. And so I think it's just a good time to hear. I'm curious. Okay, I think I saw John's hand first. Okay, can I kind of rephrase? I want to pull that down. I think I hear the... You're asking the question, when we question what God is doing, could what that seems bad to us actually be for God's good purposes? Is, have I distilled kind of what's behind your question? It's a good question. Um, come along this morning at the 1030 service, and I have a sermon just for you. <laughs> uh, Seth. Okay, great. Good question. Has anyone asked that question before? Yeah. Great. Yeah, Dave. Uh, anything, can anything happen outside of his will? Yep, okay. Yeah, kind of going with Seth's question, God, does not, God is not a God who delights in evil. Uh, if he doesn't delight in evil, does he desire evil? If he didn't desire evil, could something like evil turn up on the scene? Kind of pulling those things together, right? Yeah. Any other question? Yeah. Um, why did God create or Why did God let evil be there in that? Probably create that instead of the Adam. I, I want to tweak that question a little. Because there's a presupposition in there that I want to open up further. Brad used the word elect. Why did God elect people to go to hell? I want to make that even broader. Why did God even create any person knowing that they might or would experience the punishment of hell? So I'm not even presupposing like even a theological position on how one might get into hell or why one might get into hell. I'm just saying if God knows everything, and he knew at least one person would go to hell. What's up with that? Okay, great question. No one has any other questions. Well, that's as easy. We just have theodicy and um, God's decrees and the damned. Yeah, that's... Come on, you've got to have some more questions. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Okay, has anyone, if God is sovereign, why pray? Um... That's a great question. Um, I couldn't count on one hand. I, I, I couldn't count, right? How, how many times that thought has crossed my mind? If God is sovereign, uh, why pray? And just for fun, can I tweak that question? If God isn't sovereign, why pray? Okay, another question. Dave. Okay, yeah. 
Um, if God elects, why evangelize? Great question. Um, if God is sovereign, how much choice does that have? How much choice? Yeah, yeah, okay. About that much? <laughs> if God is sovereign, so ask your question again. If God is sovereign, how much is my choice? Okay, great question. Any others? Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay, um, so you're kind of drilling down into a, a question of how we use the word sovereignty. Yeah, we'll certainly get that. Um, if God is sovereign, am I hearing a question right? If God is sovereign sometimes, why does that mean he's sovereign all the time? Or if he is sovereign and he... Di- yeah, yep. Yep. Why does that mean then that the Bible then dictates everything, or that God has to dictate everything? Okay. Yep. Assuming that, like, the president is the president. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'll pull back a little. <laughs> I hear your question. It is always good to, to qualify. Yes. Uh, otherwise, people say, Did you hear what Andrew said? <laughs> Um, I think that raises a good question. Um, sometimes um, the discussion is framed, I believe in God's sovereignty, you don't believe in God's sovereignty. And um, un- until you get uh, on the periphery of some, um, can I say, over-the-edge areas uh, um, out of orthodoxy, um, when you're within that, it's not that one theological position says, we believe God is sovereign, and another theological position says, we don't believe he's sovereign. Both are saying God is sovereign. The question is, in what ways does he operate or function in his sovereignty in this world? So it's kind of related to your question as well. Yeah, great. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, George. So in our country, we have elections, and it's not that way around the world, but if God is sovereign, then why, why should we participate in something like that when we already have each chosen our leaders? Yes. And that question is kind of related to the, uh, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why evangelize? We're kind of asking the question, like, if God is sovereign, then what, pol- what is, we're not asking just a question of, do I have a choice? We're kind of asking a derived question that doesn't even matter. Like, like if God is doing his thing, then he'll do his thing, and it doesn't matter what I do. Yeah. And... Um, and boy, we've all we've all thought about that too, haven't we? Um, does it even matter if I do X, Y, or Z? And sometimes we can go to the other side and go, you know, if if God is sovereign, or uh, if God is sovereign, doesn't matter. We can go to the other extreme and say, since God is sovereign, um, if I take out house insurance, I'm not uh, depending on His sovereign will. But somehow they're unrelated. Or if God is sovereign. Birth control is sinful, or something like that. And that's kind of how we wrestle on the other extreme. Yeah, great question. Yeah, amazing. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Boy, you packed two in there. <laughs> yeah. Channel. Yes. I remember in seminary, can God build a rock too big for him to lift? Right. Um, great question. If God is sovereign, um, is there something limited by his nature? Yeah, that's kind of really thinking about the, the doctrine of God and how those attributes function. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, okay. To tweak that question a little, just be a little more provocative. In order to become man, did Jesus somehow stop functioning in his divine nature? Or stop participating in the divine nature in some way? Yeah. Because we can kind of expand that sovereignty out, you know, to other aspects. Let's throw another hand somewhere. Brian. Um, you kind of, a lot of questions are like, we have a choice or it's God's choice or the other, right? But we're, with sovereignty, we look at it like, it's God's choice always, it's sovereignty. But what about, like, suicide? That's like the ultimate choice of a human that you made a choice that really impacts you. Or any other evil? Yeah. Can we say... Are you asking kind of question, can we say God chooses evil? Is that kind of question you're asking? I mean, I kind of know this being with boxes, but this yeah. Thing, you know, like, we make that choice. We choose. If we yeah. choose Yeah, yeah. Or the flip side is, can, if I choose to kill myself, have I forced God's hand? Is that way of proving something about my choice overcoming somehow God's work? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, sure. Great. Do you have a, what's your question? I love that. that. That's a great example to bring up. Okay. 
Yeah, I think even even in Jesus, uh, Jesus says, you know, if if the if this gospel message had been proclaimed in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they would have repented like it has in Tyre and Sidon. So greater the judgment. So there's kind of like another example of God's knowledge of possibilities being different than what actually happened. So if you could bring out, broaden out your question is how might we think about God's knowledge of possible eventualities and what actually happens? And what do we do with that? Yeah, great question. Okay, so I'm looking at the time. We should... Thank you. I, I think... Um, I'm going to guess most of the questions that were raised, most of us have thought, yeah, we've thought something like that before. Um, and these are the things, as we read Scripture, uh, we, we kind of you know, might be reading through... Where is that? Second uh, Samuel. Is that Second Samuel? I'm thinking, um, you know, reading through, you know, you're reading through the Bible in a year, and, you, and you, you read it and go, yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that. You, you don't have an answer you're going to read on. And so hopefully we can have some tools to begin to reason through how to respond to these passages and, and how to wrestle to get some kind of parameters on some kind of resolution. We might not get a definitive answer, but we might be able to say some true things. Um, that keep us going outside the bounds of orthodoxy, helps us read scripture accurately, but doesn't give us all the answers. I think an example, let me just use this, uh, as we think about the Trinity. You know, what it, can, you, can you explain the Trinity? No, I can say some true things about the Trinity and say some things the Trinity is not. Um, we might say there aren't three gods. There is one God, one essence of God. So we affirm something, one essence of God, we say you should not say there are three gods. So it gives us some parameters of orthodoxy around which we try to speak accurately. And we'll be doing some of that here as well, that Scripture gives us some bounds, some boundings in how this discussion should occur. And that um, preserves us, saves us from going wild one direction or the other. And uh, it helps us keep reading Scripture with greater insight as well. Okay, so we're going to hit some terms, and uh, I want to run through some definitions here. As we talk about them, I'll I'll give some more meat for these definitions, but I think it's helpful right at the beginning just to lay these out and kind of plant in your mind as we hit these terms going forward. Um, And I think these terms help bring clarity to the discussion. Oftentimes, there's... um, There's argumentation or wrestling with one another to try to understand what we're talking about, and we might be talking about different things or using terms imprecisely. I used an example earlier. I believe in the sovereignty of God. You don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Well, that's not quite accurate. It would be fair to say my understanding of the sovereignty of God and your understanding of the sovereignty of God is different in these ways. We might even say, actually, your definition is not an accurate biblical definition of what sovereignty actually entails. So there are different ways that we might use terms. So let me just look at a few definitions here. Determinism. Determinism is the idea that everything that comes to pass is determined or necessitated by prior conditions. Determinism is not necessarily a particularly biblical uh, concept. Um, Secular philosophers who try to think about our existence, um, some secular philosophers who have no regard for scriptures might have a view of this world that is deterministic. 
That is, you live in such a world that, all, that your decision now is dependent upon all your prior decisions and experiences. So this is not particularly, we might say, theological, but theological determinism is thinking about this in more theological terms, that God providentially determines or decrees everything that comes to pass, including human choices. And we saw that perspective from Westminster Confession. Um, Then there's indeterminism, the opposite of determinism, um, the denial of determinism, that is, that some events are fully indeterministic. That is, there are some things, at least some decisions, that are not necessitated or forced by prior determining factors. Okay. Moral responsibility, what are we talking about here? A person is praiseworthy or blameworthy as a consequence of their morally significant actions. That is, actions of right or wrong. And then free will, when you talk about free will, what are we talking about here? The power or ability to make morally responsible choices to perform morally responsible actions. Now, here I'm using the term free will in a broad way. And I think that is necessitated by the issues we're dealing with. Some would say, some would qualify the nature of free will. So it's kind of like the discussion we had with sovereignty. In what way does God function in his sovereignty? God is sovereign. Wherever wherever you are with an orthodoxy on your understanding of these issues, you all ought to affirm God is sovereign. To not affirm God is sovereign, I think, would be a heretical position. Likewise, we would all affirm free will. The question would be, What is the nature of the free will that we are talking about? What is the nature of freedom? How do we think about freedom? So as I talk about these terms, what I'm trying to do is whenever we use these terms, we use the term with a whole lot of presupposition. We assume meanings to that. And in order to think clearly and biblically, we need to be careful to think, oh, I have some assumption packaged in here. When I use the word free will, I think this. And what I'm proposing here is that the broadest definition of free will is the power or ability to make morally responsible choices. We might say you are not coerced, forced, or manipulated. Yeah, Lisa. Um, Great question. So I'm developing this just with the categories I have. So the way I'd answer that question is, as I look at Scripture, um, every choice I make has a moral element to it. So um, whether I make a choice with humility and faith in Christ or whether I make it with an attitude of self-sufficiency or rebelling against God. So I'm held responsible for the moral aspects of my life. Um... That, that is, that, so the responsibility aspect has to do with morality. Um, so here I'm talking about the particular choices and responsibility. I think you're asking the question, 
um, broadly, any choice I make, take all the categories away, are any choices determined by God? Um, the, the moral choices we make have to do with um, our attitude or perspective on God. So uh, the, when I'm using the term moral or moral choices, I'm thinking about do we live in submission to the authority of God or do we rebel against him? I'm thinking of Romans 1 there. Um, strictly, we might use the term morals to speak of particular acts. But here, when I'm using the word moral responsibility, I'm not just thinking of you know, stealing, committing adultery. I'm thinking of God holding us morally culpable. Jesus distills that down to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So most broadly, we'd say, what is moral responsibility? Have you completely and perfectly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loved your neighbor as yourself? And to the degree that you haven't, you have failed to meet God's moral perfection. Is that helpful? Okay, kind of. So you can give me that look, and that's okay. Okay, um, that's a okay. Try better next time. Um, keep the questions coming at me. Okay, so here's a, a word you may not be familiar with: compatibilism. Big word, but I think it's a helpful word, and don't be afraid of it. It's just a really useful word. Um, what is compatibilism? It's the view that determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. So, compatible, that God's sovereign decrees are compatible with moral responsibility. And the freedom with which we make choices. So, is it compatible? It would be the position that says it's compatible. The alternative position, broadly, is what we would call libertarian free will. The view that determinism is not compatible with free will or human responsibility. So libertarianism is the ability to make free choices that are not determined. And have have this perspective is not to say that someone who has this perspective does not believe in the sovereignty of God, but rather that God's exercising of his sovereignty in creation is done in such a way that it does not interfere with man's freedom to choose whatever he might choose. And libertarian free will, notice, is a qualifier to free will. It's saying what kind of free will? It's a free will that is has complete liberty. That is... The choice of people is genuinely free to choose whatever, beyond whatever they desire, but whatever is possible. And technically, this would be called the freedom to choose to the contrary. Uninfluenced, uncontrolled, uncoerced from any previous experiences or even from your desires. So it's a freedom to choose the contrary. So there are a few definitions, and as we talk about them going forward, um, if, if, I, if you've forgotten what it means, if you want me to clarify that, just put up your hand. 
but I think these are helpful words. And, and, and what I want is that you, these aren't like scare words, uh, that these are helpful words for us to reason carefully in understanding our position and what Scripture says. Let me just finish with this question. How glorious is God? Now, this is not really getting at the heart of the class but uh, in, in one way, but it is in another way. I want us just to pause here and think about this question, how glorious is God? I was asking another question, how big is God? We are wrestling with a profound question here, the nature of God's sovereignty and the nature of human choice. And one of the things we wrestle with is, hey, God, you don't make sense. And I just want to pause and just step back a little and, and reflect on the glory of God. We can't even comprehend the immensity of God and the ability of God to do things, we might say, that are most apparent in the creation that we observe. We don't have the knowledge or the comprehension, for example, to understand all the connections and all the relationships in the human body. But God, in his infinite wisdom, had complete and perfect knowledge and out of nothing created the human body in its amazing complexity. We can't even begin to really touch or to access or to comprehend the glories of God as revealed in the creation that we can touch and feel and see around us, let alone the glories of the universe or the amazing complexity of the ecosystem of this world. So if nothing else this week, I'd encourage you just to think about the world around you, the tangible world, and to reflect, how does this stimulate me or stir me to reflect on the marvelous glories of God. He is immense. He is marvelous. He is grand. I I can't even wrap my mind around this. You can't even think. The human mind doesn't even have the capacity to think all the true things that knowledge has given us about the body at the same time. We, We have to think in parts, in perspectives. So let me finish with reading from Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray.